he serves as almost a Watson to the Sherlock of Andy Dufresne. Yeah. Um, in the sense that he's the point of view that we're attached to as the reader, yet he's not the main character. Andy Dufresne is the main character. And much like that in a lot of Sherlock Holmes novels, you know, Watson is the narrator, but Sherlock Holmes is the main character. Welcome, friends, to episode 268 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss Stephen King's 1982 novella, Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption. Here we are with one of our favorite authors on this podcast that we we have come back to many times, Stephen King, the one and only. Um, and it's always fun, I think, to return. Uh, as soon as I started reading this thing, I was immediately like, oh, yeah, here we go. Yeah. I, I just, he's, he's so good. Yeah, it's a warm cup of tea, right? Like, it's funny yeah. th- to think of the master of horror as being that, but it's something about the way that he tells stories. Like, they just feel, you feel like yeah. you're in good hands right away, and this is a novella. It's short It's for almost King. like he's good at this thing, this writing Seems thing. Seems like he might make a, make a go at it. This <laughs> yeah. is short for him, right? This is, like... V- Incredibly short. And, you know, we've read, we read The Body from the same collection. This is from different seasons. Different seasons, which, by the way, I'm going to put in our bookshop... Uh, and there will be a link in the show notes if you wanted to get this collection. It also has Apt Pupil and I think one other, one other in there that I'm forgetting the name of. But um, it's got a, it's just a collection of short stories that are all not horror. Um, although you know all of them have some horror elements, uh, you might say. But yeah, that, that his whole idea was to call it different seasons because he he wanted it to to stand out from the horror that he had been writing. Yeah, and he he has this theme uh hope springs eternal is the other like sort of subtitle for this yeah. this which is technically Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. Um, nope, just and Shawshank Redemption. No the And Shawshank Redemption. Sorry. <laughs> uh and then he also has uh for the body for example it's Fall from Innocence and then The Breathing Method is the other story you were mentioning. Breathing Method. That's a yep. winter's tale. Apt people is Summer of Corruption. So he has like a season thing going on there which is pretty fun uh, okay yeah i guess i didn't think about that that's that's with the different seasons plays in cool shawshank redemption this is a a movie i've seen several times um i had never read this novella though um so i was excited to get into it and um you know i, I can't remember the first time i saw this movie i was definitely pretty young and then i remember i watched it again when I was older, and I think I got a lot more out of it and liked it more than the first time I saw it. Um, so I've had a bit of a journey with the film, and then uh, I'm, you know, pleased to add on now the the novella because once again, I'm, I'm as we're reading it, I'm like, man, so much of what I liked in the movie is right here in this book. Definitely, yeah, I mean, I think the movie makes a lot of smart changes that we'll touch on next week when we get there, but very short for King. And I think there's something appealing about that. I think I, I'm so sure. accustomed to the really long epics that, that Stephen King writes and. And getting into something shorter, it's it's so welcoming. It, the the story flies by, and I love that like time, big chunks of time are passing, and it takes place in this prison where the inmates feel the same. Like time is just flying by at a rapid pace, um, and uh, the story kind of emphasizes that as well. There wasn't a moment where I wasn't entertained and and interested in the yeah. story. It's just so readable, man. It's like it's just I just enjoy it. You know, talking about novellas is an interesting subject because. At the time he wrote this, and you can tell when you read the afterward, novellas were were not, they're just like a weird length that a lot of people didn't know what to do with. They weren't selling very well. There wasn't a lot of markets that would take them. They're kind of too long for a lot of like magazines. Not necessarily, but they're a tougher sell for them because they're longer. But then they're, too, they're the kind of too short to be published as standalone books. That was at the time. What's interesting is today, and in fact right now, it feels like we're kind of in a renaissance of uh, novellas, Hmm. specifically in genre spaces. I don't know if that's true in literary or not, but and in what um, what capacity are people reading these? Like on on ebook, like Kindles and that kind of thing, or where they're getting releases. You know, like um, former guest of the podcast uh, Fonda Lee just had a a novella called uh, come out called Untethered Sky. um, That that. is definitely got like you know like I think it's even a hardcover or at least a trade paperback. I thought that was a f- full length novel for some reason. That's interesting. No novella. Wow. Um, there's this book that is has been getting 
super popular because this tweet went viral about it by uh, Bigolus Dickolus, is the name of the Twitter account. Nice. Um, tweeted about how to lose the time war. I feel like I've heard of that. I don't know if you've heard of this this Twitter thing, but not this Twitter thing. Essentially, um, this this fan account for Trigun with the user account Bigolus Dickolus tweeted just like an all caps like endorsement of this book, like go read it. Um, it's by Amal El Mutar and uh, Max Gladstone, who are both former instructors of mine at Viable Paradise. Um, so I was very kind of tied into it and excited for them because they're both wonderful people. And I was, I was just excited to see them getting kind of noticed for this. And then, of course, this weird thing happens, which happens sometimes on the Internet, where the it's getting retweeted and retweeted and it starts going kind of crazy. And then people in the book world are like laughing. And like, I think the name is part of what made it so kind of uh, mimetic. And then all of a sudden, articles start getting written about the fact that this is happening um, because what happens is the book starts rising back up on the bestseller list. And this is a book that came out in 2019 um, and then goes mega viral. And then now all of a sudden, this novella, I think, got all the way up to like number three overall bestselling book on Amazon um, and became a bestselling book years after coming out of its initial release um, all because of this viral moment it had. And so much so that people are even joking because it, I think it leapfrogged a recent uh, uh, winner of the Pulitzer prize. So people are saying that Bigelow's Nicholas sells more books than winning a Pulitzer. <laughs> wow. I, I think the only reason I'd heard about this, this book is because of you. I think you'd mentioned it to me in the past. Um, I had no idea about this Twitter thing though. I think there was an adaptation or at least an acquiring of rights announced for How to Lose the Time War. So this is how you'd lose the time war. I think it's actually the name of it. Hopefully this will make it more likely to actually happen. You know what I mean? Because you never know just when an option happens. But hopefully the, the sort of viral nature of it will encourage someone to actually, you know, make this thing into a reality. But anyway, all of that was kind of a digression. But my whole point was that's a novella. And it's one of the hottest selling books right now, period. And it's the hottest selling book in science fiction right now. Um, and, you know, short. And I, I think part of it is the uh, the the proliferation of Audible, of or I should just say audiobooks in general, and then ebooks, like you said. Um, and people's, some might argue that some people want the shorter things nowadays. Maybe our attention spans are different. I don't know if that's true. But I hear that sometimes when people are trying to figure out why novellas are kind of having a moment. But um, Tor.com has become famous for, you know, really quality novellas. I see a lot of authors writing them kind of in between longer works, which is interesting because that's what Stephen King says he did for this uh, collection. When you read his when you read it the afterward here, he says he basically wrote each of these in between longer longer novels and often longer horror novels. And he was writing these as kind of a kind of a release and, and a break from horror for a minute here or there. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting. Novellas are definitely having a moment right now. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't find myself reading. I mean, it's difficult to read a lot outside of the podcast in general because we, we read so much. But uh, I can definitely see for us just because neither of us are like hugely, you know, fast readers like some people are. Exactly. Yeah. I could see myself being enticed into a shorter story, though, because of that. Right. Because we totally. can read it in between bigger projects and things like that for the podcast. Definitely a space I'm interested in reading. And, you know, I'm, I'm excited to read Fonda's new work. So, yeah, it's 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 um it's a cool space. I definitely want to play around with writing some novella length stuff. Um, that's definitely something I'm interested in. But let's get back to let's get focused in on what this one is. Um. In the afterword, Stephen King talks about how he had an editor at the time. I think it was just after he sold Carrie, who was asking him, okay, what's next? What's your next thing that you're going to do? And from even that early on in his career, when he started pitching new ideas, his editors were hearing them and going, that's great. That'll probably sell really well. But just be aware you're, you're at risk of getting pigeonholed and getting pigeonholed as a horror writer, which especially at the time was not a genre that was doing particularly well. Um, and so King was a little worried about that, but he has, over the course of his career, of course, I think kind of embraced being called a horror writer. But, he, you know, like any artist, I think he likes to play around with other genres just to kind of prove that he can. Um, there's always a little bit of like a, 
it's like he gets dared into these things sometimes when I'm reading him because he's talking about these critics who who say things like, oh, Stephen King could publish a laundry list right now or a grocery list and everyone would buy it because they, they get so convinced of his like stardom and everything. And that's why we get him writing under Bachman, right? Like it is where he's trying to prove his critics wrong. It gives him it gives him fuel. And then I think this is also an attempt to be like, I can write stuff and do well in areas that aren't horror. And I think all four of these really three of them have been adapted. Um, yeah. And I think all three of them, people are surprised to hear King wrote often. Like totally. I remember people talking about the Shawshank Redemption. And then when I found out King wrote it originally and talking to them about it, they're like, no, he didn't. They didn't believe yeah. me. He's even talked about that. I think it's in on writing. He, he tells us he tells an anecdote about someone. I think it was meeting someone in a, in a grocery store who asked him uh, what he did for a living. And he said, oh, I'm an author. And she said, um, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing something I read a long time ago, so I may have this wrong. But she said something to the effect of, well, what do you write? And he said, well, I write, a, uh, you know, I wrote Carrie and I wrote it and I wrote, you know, like listed a bunch of his horror novels. And she said, oh, I don't I don't like that that horror stuff. I, I prefer stories that are more about, you know, the triumph of the human spirit, like Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> and he goes, oh, I wrote that one, too. <laughs> and she, like, didn't believe that's him. That's awesome. That's great. So that, that's the kind of, it's the funny thing about this, right? Like, yeah, I think it is, like, him trying to prove to himself and to his fans and to everybody, the world, that he can do other things. To, I think, a great degree of success here. You know, this is, Clearly. people say it's one of their favorite movies. And I think the you yeah. know the movie has its Won own. Won tons of rewards. Yeah, and the movie has its own success. And the, the, you can kind of separate it from King in that way. But ultimately, he wrote the source. You can tell that it's King. You can tell that it's his voice if you're looking for it. And yet it is so different. And it has, you know, they say, like, I like stories of the triumph of the human spirit. And you're like, well, a lot of his horror does that, too. And like, that, that's sure. sort of, you know, I think a lot of his books end up more hopeful than people think. Of. A lot of literature does that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, it would be truly interesting to me to conduct, a, you know, a, a questionnaire or even just like ask a bunch of Shawshank Redemption fans. And say, hey, did you know that this is adapted from a novel? What percentage of them says yes? And then, truthfully, what percentage of them can name the author who wrote the novel it was adapted from? I, I don't know what that number would be, but I, I think it would be surprising. Yeah, it's funny when that happens, too. Like, there's so many that we've covered for the podcast that I think people would be surprised to know were based off books. Yeah, this is one that I, I, I think people think of this as a movie. I, I, this is not one, much like Stand By Me, it's another one where I think a lot of people just don't even know that it's a, an adaptation. Exactly, yeah. The Rob Reiner film people think of more yeah. often, and it's they call it Stand By Me. Not a lot. You don't hear a lot of people walking around calling it The Body. Sure. You know, with King, too, I think as he's... His, legend has grown and like the resurgence with like it i think was like that coming out brought him to the forefront of people's minds again in i a mean way. it's like he never really went away <laughs> like, no i don't think so either he has a period of a few years where you don't hear about a major adaptation and then he comes roaring back um and he's that's been the you know he's been doing that for yeah. decades now. but it being like one of the biggest movies of that year and then like the that's hype true. for an it part hey, two and then we capitalized on it for the podcast yep. and, and you think of like the 80s nostalgia stuff that's going on or it was has still been going on with Steve, Stranger, Stranger Things, Things and yeah, definitely leaning heavily on Stephen King's work. A lot of people look at that and say, "Oh, this is so heavily influenced by Stephen King." One of the characters is reading a King book in like the opening uh, episode, and like there's some of that stuff where they're doing direct nods. And since then, everything's been getting adapted from his work and readapted, um, new versions of it. And I think now, if you ask people if Shawshank was based on a book, more people would know that versus maybe before. I mean, maybe ten years ago. Certainly, the people the, the the circles we run in. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I wanted to ask you, you know, you, you said, you know, warm cup of tea, familiarity, you, you know, you found it readable, but like, what were some major takeaways from this book for you? What, how does it, how does it stand apart from other King you've read? This is more similar to, to King and then I'll get to what's different. But like the way that he's building dread in this story, I think like you get a lot of the tension building up because at first he introduces a character who's like 
really charismatic. And I'm going to come back around to this and ask you if you feel like maybe any of the characters in the story have the sh- a shine to them or anything like that. Oh, interesting. Because, uh, you know, this is the greater Stephen King universe. So we have to think about that. But um, it's true. So he's building dread through the story. You're kind of like, OK, they're in a prison. What what normally happens in a prison story, a prison break? You're like, so, you know, are we going to see that happen? Is he going to is he going to somehow get parole and get out and try to dr- break other people out? That kind of thing. And so he's building the story along and, and you can and I love the way that he uses the the narrator to create the mystery so that we don't yeah. know exactly what's going on. He's like our main character. Andy's kind of difficult to discern what he's doing at times for the narrator. So we don't know what he's up to. Uh, and I think yeah. that keeps a mystery going for, for a lot of the story. But um, it's I don't know. I come, keep coming back to the ways that it's not different because a lot of people sure. will say it's different because it's more human and because there's not supernatural yeah. things. But in a lot of his stories, people overlook some of the some of the worst cruelty in, in his stories are human made. And, oh, and yeah. Time and again, it, it feels a lot in the same vein as a lot of King. And it just so happens that prison and the the seepage of time just like falling through your fingers and the the prison system in general is kind of the horror of the story if you will i agree with that you know i i wouldn't say i necessarily felt a sense of dread reading it but i will grant you that might be because i know andy dufresne escapes sure because i've seen the movie yeah (laughs) um maybe maybe tension's a better word tension might be be more accurate to what i was feeling definitely anticipation to the to the breakout um you know, obviously, I guess we're fully spoiling this thing, but it's a pretty old movie, and a lot of people, I think, are familiar with it. Um, our whole story uh, is told through Red's point of view. One significant change, I think, is that this version of Red, I'm not sure, is the character also named Red in the movie? I think he might be. I think so, yeah. But, yeah, but this version of Red um, is a white man who is similar to the Morgan Freeman character, but different in a few, like, I think, notable ways. And he um, he serves as almost a Watson to the Sherlock of Andy Dufresne. Yeah. Um, in the sense that he's the point of view that we're attached to as the reader, yet he's not the main character. Andy Dufresne is the main character. And much like that in a lot of Sherlock Holmes novels, you know, Watson is the narrator, but Sherlock Holmes is the main character. Um, and so I think that, that that dynamic is is being played with here. And that was one of the things I found really interesting. It's first person. It's being written in like sort of an epistolary form almost. It's like we're reading a manuscript that he is actively writing. He's referring to us, the the reader, a few times, almost like it's written to us as a letter um, or something like that, or just you, the eventual reader. Um, so I thought a lot of the form was a little novel to me. Um, but like you said, there's so many familiar hallmarks of, of King's work. He does that like blue collar New England voice so incredibly well and it just immediately shines like red is so distinct um his voice comes through so strongly and then of course he's like giving us direct narration about events he wasn't even present for like he's telling us exactly what was said in this like courtroom and like all this stuff and it kind of like stretches believability a little bit but you're you're so in it that you don't really care you're like yeah here we go and he's always kind of making it seem like it's been told to him by somebody else who was there and he just remembers it to a T. And so it's like, this is gospel. Andy Dufresne is a legend at this point. And he, you know, he's like, yeah, this is all larger than life. Maybe it happened this way. Maybe it didn't. Yeah. And that analogy you made about Sherlock and Watson is so, is so true. And this really does, the more I think about it, it is sort of a mystery novel as time goes on. Totally. There's, there's multiple mysteries that, that are at play here. What, what happened? Did Andy actually commit a murder? Multiple murders? Yeah, we, we lead off with the fact that, that supposedly Andy Dufresne killed two pe- murdered two people. Mm-hmm. And we believe Red. I think it's brilliant because he has Red admit to the fact that he actually did kill people. And he admits to that. And so we immediately believe him. We're like, okay, like this guy's willing to admit that the things he's done so I, I'm he's he's playing it straight with me, right? Like he's not an unreliable narrator in that sense. And then he talks about how he believes that Andy Dufresne didn't didn't commit the murders. And then we hear about the immediately we lead off with this trial. There's this mystery at the heart of it of like, well, if Andy Dufresne didn't kill his wife and and lover, who did? And then we also get the mystery of kind of halfway through the novel, or maybe three fourths of the way through the novel, he says Andy Dufresne escaped, and then we're like, "How the fuck yeah. did he do it?" And then the mystery unravels of how he made it out. He loves to do that, right? Like he tells you the thing that you feel like it's it's like it, I, I feel about it in multiple ways. Like on one hand, you're like, "Oh, isn't that the big reveal that he's going to escape?" Like 
why not withhold that information as an author? But I think King is ahead of us in a sense because he's like, nah, you're, you as the reader, you kind of know he's going to escape. So I'm just going to go ahead and get all that, that cards on the table. Now the reveal and the reason that you're going to continue to read is to find out how it happened, how, how we get from A to B. And he does this all the time, and uh, we've talked about this in other books, where he'll, he'll just reveal that a character died or, or something, and you're like, what? And then, like, you find out how. Yeah, it's really smart, because like you said, you know, he thinks there's some savvy readers out there who are going to pick up on it, totally. and he's like, well, then, let's just give it to you, and then have you kind of, because you don't know how it happened. He knows that they don't know how exactly. it happened. Um, so that's, you know, he's, it's fun that he plays with the form like that. And then, uh, you know, another, th- I mentioned it already, but just the way that He's like, you know, this is, it was 1935, it was 1940, it was 1950. And the way that he's sort of giving us all of that timetable so that when yep. we learn about Andy's escape, we understand like the perseverance and everything. And I, this is like really getting into the, the end and the spoilers. But like, it, it makes you think about like, if you think you'd be capable of the patience, you know, or the misdirection that that's uh, required to to pull something like this off because i think a lot of people think if they went to prison they could somehow find a way to sneak out and you like to think like oh prison break (laughs) could i do it and that kind of thing like this shows like you could if you had 27 or 37 years or however long it was maybe i mean i I definitely have a lot of thoughts about that it it sounds to me like maybe we need to move into the plot so i have it divided up into two two chunks i'll I'll read each and we can react to them chronologically. do we want to recommend uh who you know i think a lot of people are familiar with this story but do you recommend people read the book if they haven't totally i'm glad i've read this now as part of of stephen king's work and i I enjoyed the hell out of it honestly is there anything that you felt like you got out of the book that that you didn't sort of already get out of the film um i need to rewatch the film obviously to kind of refresh my memory but um stephen king's language and his his mastery of uh character building um you know he's he's doing so many he's spinning so many plates so expertly that it becomes easy to kind of like take it for granted but you know as i'm reading it i'm just going like wow he's doing such a good job of like quickly characterizing so many people in distinct ways um i I noted that he would do this thing where he would introduce a character and he would always find like one or two physical attributes that are so distinct like he's describing like a warden who has like a a tight taut like belly but it's like, uh, or I think it's like, it's like a, um, like a beer belly almost though. But it's like, for some reason it's like tight. And like, this guy has like, he's very like rigid. And so it like, it's such a perfect little descriptor and he doesn't describe everything else about the guy, but just like one or two little physical details. And then he'll give us like an, a, a line about his personality and what kind of man he is. And like those two things, it's like in two sentences, you get such a clear image of a character um, and that's that's impressive stuff when authors can do that. Yeah, I agree. He He's always been good at, at sort of, you know, the archetype characters that I feel like you typically see in other stories. He, he takes them and makes them feel more realized very efficiently, like you're mentioning. It's a magic trick, man, to, to, to convince us that these people are real. Um, and he does such a good job of that. Like these people just feel like real people. This is a good point, too, before we jump into plot to talk about kind of some of the things that I felt were dated in the story, because there's there's a lot of older sure. King that you have to you have to kind of r- grapple with that. 82 King. So pretty, you know, it's been for over 40 years since this book was written. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, yeah, the depiction, I mean, like, as realistic as some of it is, it's the way that he goes about it sometimes, talking about certain subjects such as rape, gang rape in prison and some of the things that that we know goes on that that are, you know, obviously terrible. But the way that he kind of plays with them sometimes and the way that he talks about some of the characters and, and like sexuality in general. Pretty cavalier with it. Yeah, making some assumptions. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that, like, King does this a ton and I give him credit because like he he doesn't shy away from what he knows even at the time are going to be controversial hot button topics. Um, But because of that, some of it has not aged well. And you can look back and like throughout his work, you're going to find a lot of things that I think, you know, today you look back on and and it's cringy or honestly kind of offensive um, it just wasn't something that he necessarily, I think as a human being, a flawed individual didn't have as much awareness of, or if he was aware of it, maybe he hadn't like come around to, you know, the harm that certain depictions can be imposing. And maybe he didn't care at the time. And maybe he does more now. 
seems like he does more now. Um, but you know, it's a different time too. Like it's easy for us to point fingers now in 2023, but like life was different in 1982, especially for this white author from new England. Yeah. So I think it's just important to point out whenever, we're, cause we're heaping a lot of praise on him. There's obviously things that were like, you know, oof, you know, you have to kind of deal with this when you read some of the, some uh, older stories in general and, and King tends to have, you know, some of it pop up, Yeah, especially older stories written by white men, yeah. <laughs> you know, to, to put it, to put it bluntly. And honestly, there's a lot of stuff around race here that I definitely found myself, uh, uncomfortable with, uh, terminologies being used and words being used. And then just also like one thing it's like, he, he's. I think right in the fact that he is representing that there are a lot of racist people in the world and a lot of it's very casual and a lot of it, you know, comes out of people's mouths, sometimes even characters that we otherwise like. And so I think he's a, he does a good job of like, like he's, he never shies away from like reflecting how people talk and he listens to how people talk in the real world. And he puts a lot of that kind of stuff in his books and so you get a lot of real world racism just kind of plainly stated in a lot of these. Uh, and, and you see it here. I mean, he's talking about people who are in prison. So, like, of course, it's going to be a, like a very rough crowd, right? It's going to be a lot of like people who aren't being super careful with the way they talk. It's, it's that's yep. just going to be accurate to the setting, too. Yeah. I mean, and, and so, you know, some people look at it and think, oh, he's unflinching. And the way that he's talking about these things were, were probably at the time, even even more crazy because people weren't talking about this kind of stuff in this way. And I'm sure that's how he was thinking about it. At exactly. The time. Yeah. So you're talking about, you know, the type of characters that are going to be in a prison. And then you think and then you get this Andy Dufresne character who like sort of develops a library and some of this other stuff. I'm going to be excited to dig more into that. Let's let's jump in a plot. All right. Let's yeah, let's get into it. So in 1947 in Maine, Andy Dufresne, a banker, is tried and convicted of the double murder of his wife and her lover, despite his claims of innocence. He is sent to Shawshank State Penitentiary to serve a double life sentence. There he meets Red, a prisoner who is known in the prison for his ability to smuggle in contraband items. Andy asks Red to get him a rock hammer, which he uses to shape rocks he collects from the exercise yard into small sculptures. He later requests a large poster of Rita Hayworth, which he hangs on the wall above his bed. Over the years, Andy uses his financial knowledge to assist various prison staff. Okay, so let's stop there. Talk about him arriving at the prison and his early interactions with Red. Yeah. So we introduced like a magical genius character, right? Like a character that like knows everything useful. Uh, he fights back in, and never he never turns turns away from a fight because that's sort of. But he's not like physically talented no. in fighting. He just has like a he has this indomitable will, and that and is repeatedly like stated by Red is like. He has he walks around with this light inside of him and this freedom that he just carries with him. Other people are sort of downtrodden and looking at their shoes and shuffling around and he walks around with purpose like he's he's going to get out of here or he's going he, he at least like is making the best of living his life. You know, the get busy living or get busy dying is like a really famous line from this. Yeah. yeah. What a great line. And that's Stephen King. Like a lot. Of, I, I, when I Googled it, because afterwards I was like, this isn't him quoting something, right? This is a Kingism. It is. And when I Googled it, it's the vast number of attributions when you see it attribute it to characters from Shawshank Redemption, the film. So this is a Shawshank Redemption, the film quote, you'll see everywhere. And then every now and then you'll see someone admit in there, like actually it's Stephen King from the novel. You know what I mean? But like, it's pretty rare. And it like, that's one of it. Like that's one of King's great lines. I think get busy living or get busy dying. That's a great line. Excellent. Yeah. I mean, it's carpe diem, right? It's it's all of these different things we've heard before just said in in like a really fun and clever way. Uh, so and so like for him for that to sort of be and that doesn't pop up in the book to almost the very end. We don't hear that, which I think is also, you know, really powerful way to end the book off. But um, you know, you see this character that that kind of embodies that throughout, you know, he's trapped in this prison system. He finds ways to navigate, you know, the higher ups and the gangs that are coming after him it's clear that he's like he's a thinking man like he wants to work on geology he wants to work on he wants to start a library and he's also giving like he's like to the rest of the prison it feels whether selfish or not it doesn't it feels like even when he's out he he wishes that he could you know do do good for all these other people as well it's it's so smart because he uses all these opportunities like 
they're all done for a very specific reason. I, I'm looking at it as like a, from an author's point of view. Like he outsmarts characters a lot, but he does it in a way that isn't like uh, pretentious or necessarily like lording knowledge over people. He's generous. He sees other prisoners as human beings. We we one of the early interactions he has with the the prison uh, staff is him uh, negotiating so that all of his like coworkers he calls them can get beers. Um, and you know, he, uh, Red even talks about how this becomes like part of his legend. Everybody, like everybody loves him. Yeah. And part of it, you could look at and say like, oh, he, he understands that, you know, you want to have everybody love you in prison. That's going to be a, make it for a better life for you. But on the other hand, it's just making him out to be this good dude, um, which makes us in turn like him. And, and, you know, he, he gets this bottle of, of liquor, I guess, of some kind and, and drinks like half of it and gives the rest of it out or gives drinks part of it and gives the rest out once a year or twice a year or something like that. Yeah. Jack Daniels, which I, you know, I, I, t- I took note of because famously in The Shining, Jack um, is, is his drink. And I think it's come up in multiple King books where Jack Daniels is like a favorite of a lot of characters. And, and I was thinking about just because like I am a kind of a whiskey nerd. Jack Daniels is one of those like... It's more accessible, right? When you're first starting out with whiskey and you first start getting into bourbon and that kind of stuff, like Jack Daniels is one that is like, it's not bottom shelf, but it's accessible. So it's a little more expensive. So it feels like you're kind of like splurging a little bit to get a Jack and Coke rather than just a well whiskey and Coke. Um, and you can notice the difference too. I think you drink a Jack and Coke and you can tell that it tastes different than your, your, your standard well drink. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's like the blue collar version of like a nice whiskey. Um, and, uh, without going to places like fancy scotches where you're kind of getting into territory that a lot of like people on lower income artists aren't going to be able to afford them. Yeah. And so it's kind of excludes people in a way, you know? Yeah. And this idea of uh, him sharing that kind of beverage, too, is like it's not like a couple of beers is one thing when he's working with them and stuff, but sharing because, you know, how much it costs to smuggle this money. He smuggled money in and, and how much it costs to get each and everything in prison. There's like a tax on everything. So for him to spend his own money on it and then also share yeah. it. So so Red is the man who can get it for you is how we're kind of introduced to him. And he gets he's like he's good at smuggling in these things. But uh, coming back to the whiskey, I love the description where Red says, like, he has this odd relationship with drinking. He only does it a few times a year. But when he does, he kind of drinks to excess, it sounds like. And um, he even says, like, this is the kind of relationship you only get if you've been bitten by the bottle. And I thought that was a really interesting thing because we've t- we've seen time and again Stephen King talking about alcohol- alcoholism and addiction. And the implication is that Andy Dufresne has had problems with drinks in the pa- with drinking in the past and has developed methods to like make sure it doesn't get out of hand for himself. Yeah, and we learned that the reason he can't like vehemently deny everything that happened is because he was wasted when some of the stuff happened to his wife and such a Stephen King thing, right? Like a lot of what got him into trouble was, was the substance, right? Cause he got so drunk that he can't remember for sure certain things. And that makes him look super guilty. Right. So yeah, that's, that's what bit him obviously like that's. And and so like he doesn't, he's not interested in drinking most of the time. Yeah, it could be that, but I also just think he might've had some actual alcoholism problems. Probably. Well, if you're getting wasted enough, often enough, you know? Yeah. So we, we learn about this rock hammer and we get the um, introduction of this idea that maybe he's going to start the long process. Right. And we even hear red say something about like, Oh, it's going to take him a million years if he were to try and like chip through the wall. Um, so it kind of telegraphs what's going to go on here a little bit, especially if you know the story already. But assuming you don't, he loves like geology and he starts talking about how like water can can wear down stone over millions of years. And he starts getting these um, stone washing blanket things. I forget what they're called, but they they're like you like rub stones with them. And then over time, you'll you'll like rub them down into like smooth stones and more beautiful gemstones, I guess. Yeah, and he's finding like quartz out in the in the yard that he then does this with, and he gives Red a few and gives a few, gives some out to the people around him. And I can't remember if any of this is in the movie or not, but I think this is all like such a cool metaphor, and 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 um, he's using it as like a literary device, right? Like we're, this process is what he is doing in his escape attempt, and, we, and he's establishing that. But it's also just like the the nature of trying to achieve anything monumental where where your progress is very incremental. And I think this is something that authors have a very 
um, intimate familiarity with. And I was thinking about the process of writing a book and how often it can feel like that, where you're just doing little things that over time you look back on and you can be like, wow, look how far I've come. But along the way, it's a bunch of tiny little steps and it takes patience and it takes, you know, commitment and a lot of the stuff that I think he is like playing with, like that's one of Andy Dufresne's superpowers is his ability to sustain long-term focus and, and uh, commitment to something like this. Yeah. So Andy Dufresne is like, he's very likable. He's very smart, but he's also extremely persuasive. And this is where I'm going to bring this back up is, do you think that Andy Dufresne or any other characters that we, that we encounter have any shine or any, any supernatural, is there anything else going on? Are there unseen hands at play? in this story or do we think it's it really is just like a, a bottle story for for king i didn't th- i didn't think of any pl- uh characters as necessarily having shine um the one thing i did find myself entertaining was this random act of violence that does kill his wife and this lover um we later find out is this like guy who just robbed people and like Seems like kind of a piece of shit. And like that kind of shit happens all the time for sure in real life. But um, that random act of evil I've seen tied into some sort of supernatural element in so many other books where like some some outer forces maybe whispering whispering to these characters and like getting them to do things. Henry Bowers. See, yeah, yeah. yeah. You could almost see like, you know, is there a force like a Pennywise or somebody like that who is who is influencing these people to commit these random acts of evil? And and maybe Andy Dufresne got caught up in that. Yeah. Now, but that's not in the book. That's that's kind of more me reading sure. between the lines and thinking about how it could be. It's like if you see evil in the story, you can it, it could be twofold. It could be evil of human beings, which is totally true. But then also like outside influence and just pushing them in that direction. Like uh, you think of the warden, too. And, and like yeah. how the warden basically is using Andy to do free, uh, you know, tax work and, and like, yeah. you know, he's laundering money for him, essentially, yeah. and like helping him figure out legal ways to launder money stocks and stuff like that. He's helping people with he keeps track of that kind of stuff in the newspaper. So he's a, he's an asset and he has complete power, di- the power dynamic, complete control over him. Right. And that it's a, such an intelligent, interesting twist on on this sort of dynamic to have. Andy Dufresne in a moment of like um, trying to sort of befriend the prison staff and like see if he can kind of rope them in and um, make life better for himself um, and more comfortable. He ends up giving them this service and he doesn't realize how this service is going to in turn be be used against him in the sense that the warden doesn't want to let him out. And it becomes clear that the warden has a vested interest in keeping him imprisoned and not letting this like truth get out um, because the warden's a shitty person. And he's like he's 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 a villain in this book. And that's another thing that I think um, does age pretty well, honestly. And that's that this book is an indictment on the prison system. And it talks about for profit prisons, prisons and the corruption that is rampant. Um, and honestly, the, the sort of laughable idea about rehabilitation and, um, how this system stays with people and ruins their lives. Now he doesn't get into like whether or not it's just like, that's kind of like beside the point. Like sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't as I, I guess the, the implication we get, he just looks at like the reality is like, here's what happens when you put someone in prison for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. And how it can, you know, and then you let them out one day and they are essentially still in prison um, because they have, like, forgotten how to be free. And, like, there are things that they miss about being back inside. And and then even even the people who are running the prison, like, it definitely blurs that line of, like, who's the villains, who's the criminals here? Because you have a lot of people doing criminal shit who are running the prisons. Yeah. And and just to relate it to today, like you said, with it being relevant still, like the the idea of privatized prisons and they're incentivized to to be filled and they're making money because of it. People talk about it being it being like modern slave labor uh, totally. of today yeah. is, is through the prison systems. Yeah. I mean, King talks about that a few times as well. Uh, you know, sure. interesting to hear him. I don't know the, the accuracy of this, but when he goes back and is talking about like the 1700s or 18, I think the 1800s uh, in Maine and, and the ways that like you would dig your own, you would dig your own like basically you dig your own prison in one day and then they'd put bars over top of you 
and as big and as big and as wide as you could make it. I bet I bet it was probably true. Probably you know, like, very powerful for the story. I mean, the way we dealt with prisoners, like you think it's bad now, like it's just worse over time. <laughs> yeah, and that's what they're that's what he's getting at is like, uh, you know, you're innocent or guilty. Period. There's no like sort of like, oh, maybe he'll, yeah. you know, maybe we can find new evidence. Once you're guilty, almost anything can happen to you, and no one gives a shit. Right. So you're either put to death or put in a prison, and then this prison is you in one day dig a hole as fast as you can as big and as wide as you can because you're going to be in there for who knows how long they put bars over top of it and then they might they throw you some water once a day and then they might throw you some moldy bread and stuff and and uh they they, this gets into another thing i wanted to mention there's a character that supposedly lived down in the hole which is in shawshank it's it's not quite as bad as what we were just describing but it's that kind of thing where you're in a hole solitary confinement i think in a lot of prisons they call solitary the hole um, I think maybe it's a reference to that original practice. Honestly, I don't know. Maybe, yeah. They talk about someone who who survived the longest in there. Someone made it seven years, and it was it was a Durham boy uh, who went in a young man. And I'm like, this this just feels so specific. Like it could be another character crossing over from another King story. Is it? Did you look into it? I don't know. No, I, I mean, I tried. I, I didn't want to look into it too much because I haven't read all of King. But it definitely feels like. I, at first, I was like, are they talking about? Because I was thinking of Derry when they said Durham, and I was like, is that? Yeah. I mean, Sh- Shawshank in general has has popped up in other yeah. King works and and been referenced. So you're right. This is totally. This is totally um, in his universe. Um, you know, these characters just seem to be you know not affected by the supernatural shit that goes on in his universe. But they're they're a, they're living in that world. It seems like. The way that the story sort of develops over time, too, is like it, it starts out, you're kind of seeing these characters interact and he's, it's just survival. And then they've been in there. And then it's like, th- again, this book is very short. And by like a quarter or a third of the way in, uh, we've transitioned to the point that the characters have been in here for like 10, 15, 20 years, depending on which part of the story he's talking about at any given time. And you just think about like how long that is and how anyone doing anything for 20 to 30 years and obviously we've talked about the escape attempt and it's coming but like we and we don't know the entire story but you think of these characters and how much it changes you that after that that period of time and then to keep that light that they were talking about for Andy that's why sort of, you know he's the a legend that he is I think because he he helps them at the library to study for you know um, education on their when they get out to have having a degree or having a high school diploma that sort of thing um, so he, he builds that legend to the point that you're like this character is like a superhero in everybody's <laughs> eyes and they all love him so that's why they all know about him a couple of things come to mind one you, you know whenever you make a, a a character into a big reader and like especially someone who like shares books with other people you're going to endear yourself to the readers of the book you're writing. That's a, you know, like I think a little trick that, I, you know, I see King use a lot and other authors have definitely picked up on it. I mean, like all of us reading the book are like, oh man, like I would, if I was in prison, that's the only yeah. thing I could do is read books. You know what I mean? I'd be reading everything. I'd be reading all the time. Yeah. It's like the one thing people think about and go like, oh, I can have time to read. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's funny. I love the way he conveyed that passage of time where he would repeatedly touch on like the World Series and like where certain sports teams were at and then political stuff. He would like talk a little bit about politics, but it was always so interesting because like you could tell that it was like on the outside world. This is the stuff you were dealing with to us on the inside. It wasn't like we weren't necessarily following it, but like so it kind of created also that separation of like this is how you can be familiar with what it was like in this period but recognize that that wasn't necessarily what we were engaging with because we're almost in a separate world over here in confinement. Right. So in October of 1967, Andy tells Red about Peter Stevens, a pseudonym under which Andy had sold his assets and invested the proceeds. Andy tells Red that one day Peter Stevens will own a small seaside resort hotel in Zihuatanejo, Mexico. On the morning of March 12, 1975, after 28 years in prison, Andy disappears from his locked cell. After a search, Warden Samuel Norton discovers that the poster pasted to Andy's cell wall covers a man-sized hole. Andy had used a rock hammer to slowly chip a tunnel through the wall. In September of 1975, Red receives a blank postcard from McNary, Texas, a tiny town on the Mexican border, and surmises that Andy crossed the border there. In March of 1977, Red is paroled. He finds a letter wrapped in plastic addressed to him from Peter Stevens, inviting him to join Andy in Mexico and $1,000 in cash. The story ends with Red preparing to break his parole and follow Andy to Mexico. 
So we got the whole uh, escape attempt to get into here, but I think we should definitely focus a little bit on Rita Hayworth and this poster, um, which is in the title of the entire novella. So very important, clearly. Um, and then, like, interestingly, by the time he escapes, it's actually been shifted to a Linda Ronstadt poster. Yeah, it was Marilyn Monroe at one point. I like the way he does that as well. It's like he transitions the posters to different characters. But the Rita Hayworth specifically, and it being part of the title, he talks about how when he looks at her, he feels like he can walk right. He can go right th- into the painting or right into the picture and go like right through it and be out on the outside. And the way that that is exactly what he does. He goes th- through the, this picture. Exactly and uh you know finds himself on the outside and so i think that that's the significance in the title i mean it's a clever use of uh, of an image to convey something more and that's i think the way that he's able to hold on to hope of having a quote unquote normal life to you know being able to live on the outside um it, be- it, be- it becomes representative of that to him um and yeah i mean that that's so perfect too that it it, it doubles as of course it covers up the hole but also like you said it's thematically relevant that that's where the hole is yeah and it's not it's the kind of thing that prison a prisoner might hang up in there and it wouldn't be you know it wouldn't stand out too much he does such a great job of describing the like economics of prison and the way the guards deal with stuff and like when they are going to choose to care and when they're going to choose not to care and like he like he can he's totally convincing in the way that he describes how, like, you just can't care about everything as a, as a prison guard and you have to let certain things slide. It's just part of, like, getting on. And, like, if it's not hurting anybody, sometimes you just kind of let things go. And it seems like these posters are kind of that. But, of course, that also leaves the space for Andy Dufresne to do what he did. Yeah. One of my favorite exercises in reading this story, too, was seeing King basically say like this is going to happen then this is going to happen and then this is going to happen and then you could look you could find little parts throughout the story where he found loopholes or he found like ways where it doesn't make a lot of sense and then he patches those so it'll be like it would have been so terrifying for Andy because if he'd been paroled they would have you know cleaned his entire room and when they moved that poster they would have been meticulous and they would have found it and then he would have had more time in jail and he would have never gotten out and that kind of thing um so he he goes around like finding this throughout the the story like uh because he wants to make it work so so a good example of this too is He's talking about how he had his friend set up this fake identity and invest all this money. And then he's got like so many reasons why and like they they that they thought this out. And it feels very much like a Sherlock Holmes story where it's like, yeah, in hind, he, you go back and you you reverse engineer the story to make it fit perfectly to where it's like, well, you know, so and so died. But then uh, it's still being controlled by it's still in this guy's name. So nothing would revert and everything would stay in his name and the safety deposit box and the the key was put in a very specific place. Uh, and, and like the ways that you can feel him doing this too, is he, he's like anything that I had invested in could have, could have bombed. And that's why he's so invested in looking at keeping up with the markets and stuff like that is because he wants to know that his $4,000 or however much it was that he invested in like, what was it? The forties or fifties? Yeah, so yeah. that, that it was still like steadily increasing in value. Cause like he, he couldn't touch it on the inside or else it would be seized. Uh, so like just a lot of interesting moments where you can kind of see him going back and be like, well, I have to have a moment where he explains this and explains this to make the mystery and make make all the, the dots connect. And, you know, and, and in that way, it's fun to, to see how he does it. And, and kind of because we, we think about story so much, we think about this kind of stuff. But it, it makes the way that he introduces it to the audience is like it, it's compelling and it's it's fun to hear how he figured all this stuff out. It does does multiple things at once, right? Because it does all of that. It is it is a little bit of the reveal of like Sherlock Holmes revealing how the crime was done. It's like him, you know, the reveal of how the escape attempt actually happened. But like he's also selling us on the risk that was involved with it. How there was an, a gambling element to it that you had to get a little bit lucky. Um, but that also like shows how like bold it was and how brave it was, um, and how it wasn't just like a well he did this because it was the only option he had. It's like no no he could have done other things that you know maybe not as risky. But on the other hand, he also like does a couple smart things in showing how unjust the system is, showing that convincing us that Andy Dufresne is innocent, and then showing how this corrupt warden is unwilling to let him bring this new evidence to light. So at that point, we're so ready for him to break out. Like, we're 100% on his side. So there's no, like, any of us, like, you don't have to take a lot to convince me, but, like, anybody reading this now is not, like, 
going, oh, you should just write out your, your you know, write it out in the system. Because, like, we're all looking at this and saying it's wrong. Yeah. Um, so, of course, we're all cheering for Andy when he gets free. Yeah. And we get the interesting details as it goes of, like, you know, how, how he was chipping off pieces and having it like in his pants and sort of loosen like just very very slowly like that sort of plotting work and how how long that would take in the the amount of power of and and that all goes back to the you know rubbing a stone with a coarse paper and doing stuff in very very small incremental things to where no one notices um and that's the superpower of andy dufresne and how careful he was too right like he he could have allowed the the debris to fall into the hole but instead he brings it out all of it out He's worried about the noise. Uh, yeah. You know, even when he they, he talks about how Red talks about how the, he knows that at one point that the hole was completed, but he he delayed leaving. Like he was he kind of was like scared to to take the leap because he knew he only had one shot at it, and there were so many variables. Yeah. Like, and he talks about how there's things he didn't know. Like, you know, once he got to the tube, like, was there going to be a grate in the in the piping? How could you know? Yeah, but you also understand why he got to the point where he was willing to try it. Yeah. Definitely. Again, it shows like the bravery, that element of like you have to get over that uh, and that like you could get trapped in there. Like you don't know if once you get in there, if you're going to be able to breathe like that's scary. My one of my favorite parts of the book, by the way, is when the warden sends one of the one of the guards in and (laughs) and he's like, there's shit everywhere. Shit, shit." He says, oh, shit, it's shit. (laughs) Yeah. I love that line. Oh, shit, it's shit. Red's out there like (laughs) cracking up. Hardest laugh he's ever had in prison. And he gets put in solitary. But like uh, just that what he what he's able to the hope he's able to give these characters to in that way. Like he got out and got away and they didn't find it for such a long period of time. But and they talk about like Red's like I would have, you know, I would have frozen from claustrophobia like you know 10 times and because he has to squeeze himself in these tiny little walls and then into the the plumbing it's like this pipe pipe on the way out it's like it's like sewage yeah and he's just you know crawling through it and i think that makes it in the movie the you know andy dufresne crawled through 500 yards of shit and came out you know clean or something on the other side like uh, and that line's from the book and um, the magical part of the story too is uh after he escapes from the pipe how does he you know how does he escape also the pursuers and like he's not like a either a naked guy or somebody in prison clothing just like running around and he had to travel 30 miles we heard to get to the key and then it's like you know how do you get clothes how do you get a car or how did he travel around and he did it though because he gets that postcard and that's the big that's the big moment when red gets that postcard you're like oh yeah. man like, ultimately it's just it, yeah he just he did it um, he and I felt way. myself like it, it really gave me that release and that fun sense of this story and, and like the joy that it brings. And you're just like, it, it, you know, and I think that's part of the reason why this movie is so endearing to people, because maybe they haven't experienced the book, but the movie has that as well. It's like that the indomitable human spirit. Right. And then the bravery that it takes to do something like this to, to get out of the system. But ultimately, like looking back at red and and thinking like if he ever gets out like that that connection that they formed that that brotherhood that they have um how he he's like waiting in the wings to, to like ha- help red have a better life as well we love to see smart characters get the better uh, of of corrupt like domineering systems and characters who are representative of those systems so uh you know it, it's such a joy to see a character like this you know get the better of the warden um, and King knows that it's not usually something that we see King do, but we've seen this in many other kinds of stories and he leans into it here. And the story ends with with Red really thinking about like what Andy gave to everybody and what's important and that that idea of hope. And I think it's even written in the letter about like having hope. And then that comes back to the subtitle of the book, which is Hope Springs Eternal and just the way that, you know, I think all of us hope to be in Andy Dufresne in the way that like you can give hope to other people and be optimistic about things that, that seem like there's no good way out. And it's, it's a bigger metaphor than just like a prison break. You know, it's about humanity in, in general. Totally. I love that there's a little detail that he takes some of the rocks, like some of his favorite rocks that yeah. he's got from all over time. He took them with him. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> he's just like, I'm keeping these. Um, like, I love that. Um, and then, yeah, like talking about like the end, um, the book takes an interesting turn because, Red gets unexpectedly paroled. He's been in jail for 40 years at this point. And he talks about how he becomes this like bag man at a local supermarket. And he says like, oh, you might have even interacted with me if you were in this part of Maine and you wouldn't have even known it or something. And um, interesting to hear him immediately sort of fall into this like, I 
started thinking about committing crimes to get back to get back inside because I was so used to the life I'd lived for so long with the structure. And the thing that kept, keeps him from doing it is the way he keeps thinking about Andy Dufresne and how his like just determined pursuit of freedom over those many years took such a sustained effort that I think Red is sort of shamed by it in the sense that he's like, well, I can't, I can't go back in, not, you know, not with what Andy did to get out. Yeah. And to explain more of like why Red wanted, he, he felt he was uncomfortable, right? It was, it wasn't just the routine. It was also like the, the world was really big and different than, than when he went in and he's been away from it. Yeah, totally. And it, and it would be, and this is a real problem. Recidivism is such a huge problem. And you know, a lot of it, is I'm sure this exact reason. I know that's something that the movie deals with well. Um, and I did read, one thing I did read about the writing of this is that he completed writing it in 1975, but he came back in 1977 and added an additional chapter. Um, I didn't see that confirmed, but I think it's this final. I think the book basically ended where we leave off the manuscript, quote unquote, that Red is writing. But then we get this follow-up chapter where we get it detailed of him actually going to join Andy in Mexico. And it's a little more hopeful, I think. And it leaves us in this like uplifting note of him deciding to risk it all and try and cross. Um, and break. he's breaking his parole. He's risking it. But he's risking it in pursuit of this life of like true freedom and seeing his friend again. Um, and we don't get it confirmed that he's going to, but of course, I think we all want to. We want to believe he makes it, and they end yeah. up being able to run this resort together. I love seeing that, like the perseverance and the determination rubbed off on Red too, because he chooses to to visit every single um, like field with a fence, basically with a stone fence in yeah. in that entire area. It's not easy. <laughs> yeah, he's like, there's like a hundred fields and farms and things like this that fit match that description, and then eventually he finds it, and, and after you know years of doing this and he's talking about like this is his hobby this is his his determination the thing he does when he's not at work and uh he finds the the volcanic rock that marks where the where the key was and there's a letter there for him with the money and uh you know i love i love the way that that sort of rubs off on red it just reminds me like this is such a uh it's become such a part of culture now that i think it's a family guy bit that i i kept thinking of where um they're, they're making fun of this moment in Shawshank Redemption. But I, I thought of it when I was reading the book, too, where he picks up the letter and he reads it. And Andy says something about, like, you remember the town. And then, <laughs> and then he's like, oh, of course I do. You know, it's Wantanejo or whatever. But, like, in the in the Family Guy bit, uh, he just, like, goes, ah, shit. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> he, he forgot it, right? And I was just laughing because I'm like, that would be me. It'd be like, oh, you remember the name of the town, right? And I'd be like, god damn it, what was it? <laughs> but I feel like you look at a map and you go through all the cities. Eventually, you'll figure it out. You got to have that determination. Yeah. If you found if you found <laughs> the rock, you'd have the determination to find the city. Yeah, maybe, man. Uh, I just think that's funny, man. That um, funny. So. So, but, uh, you know, I like the idea of him returning to this and realizing that he wanted to have the more hopeful ending because I think it is appropriate for the story. I think it honestly was necessary in it. Um, it was kind of a second ending, but I, I liked what it did for the for the novella. I just thought it was a fun mechanism, too, because it's like it, it's so final in that chapter. And I was yeah. like, oh, so the story's over. And then he's like. I never thought I'd pick this manuscript back up again. And yeah. he's like, he's like, I snuck it out just the way that Andy Dufresne snuck the money in. So he's like, he had to shove it up his butt to, to get this <laughs> yeah. manuscript out. And he's like, he's like, I had changed the wording so that if they did find it on me, it wouldn't have, impl you know, implicated yeah. uh, Andy. But like, I love that, like dealing with it, like it's this real tangible item that, you know, was actually potentially at risk to getting Andy Dufresne captured again. And that plays with that sense of like, People probably read this thing and go like, is this true? Is this real? You know? Yeah. I, I couldn't help but think like how, you know, like him writing this in prison and like just the, the risk of it being found. He talks about how he thought about destroying it many times, but like I can't, I don't believe that, that a character, like it, it pushes believability, I'll say, that a character would want this to, this manuscript to exist when they could write a manuscript again when they got out and so you know maybe some of the details would be hazy right right but the the alternative is having this super risky document i mean I, I the one thing i will say though is that like lots of people write stuff in prison like you hear about a lot of i mean like martin luther king wrote a bunch of stuff in prison it's like a lot of people take 
I mean, you have time, right? And if you have access to writing implements, that's one of the things you can do. I guess I just mean like I, I it's hard to believe that like after like he wouldn't destroy it or something just because like that that could. Well, and I, I think King thought about that and was like, well, I need to sell a reason why. Yeah. Otherwise, people are going to question it. But anyway, I thought it was cool that he picks it back up and he's like, I never thought I'd write about this again, but I'm actually on my way to Mexico. And, and yeah, you know, I like to think that there's no question in my mind that he makes it to Andy and they, you know, they chop it up together and have a good time. Yeah. I mean, it ends on hope, right? It ends on on red has found something to live for after it being so like so disconnected from from life. And he's like at a time now. And there's this really like affecting moment where he talks about how one day when this is when he's in prison, he looks in the mirror and he knows that he entered prison as like an 18 year old or 19 year old you know, boy, essentially. And now he's like 40 and he can see the old man inside waiting to come out. Mm -hmm. Now that was such a, like an affecting line. And like, as you start getting older, that is a scary thing that can happen sometimes is you can start being like, Oh man, I can see that I'm getting older and like, I can kind of project what that might look like in the next 20 years. That's scary shit. Yeah. Um, and I love that idea of that, that sense of loss that we all have about aging. And, and then you put that in prison where, you know, your life is getting spent in these within these walls that's what i was going to say too is like that that is the ultimate theft that you can do i know i know obviously it's a form of punishment and you know i don't necessarily believe in the death penalty so this is a better alternative than that um but it's to take someone's time away from them and you know i heard something recently that was talking about like you know any crime that just has a fine no matter how large the fine is only a, is only a punishment for the middle and lower class right yeah yeah i've heard that too upper class can choose to commit a crime and pay pay off whatever they need to pay off um so and this idea of like time being this commodity that all of us have that is always going away but then when put up against something like this and especially when it's when it's unjust what from yeah. andy dufresne's like case of someone being in prison for the wrong reasons just seeing that time go by is it's horrifying. It's one of the scariest things that there is because time is all we have. And that's in one way that I think Red is still a very interesting character and come bringing it back to him because he did commit murders. He talks about how he like he was trying to kill his wife. I think it was like a brake line thing, like he cut a brake line or something. And then she ended up having someone else in the car with her and like he multiple people got killed. I think that they, they, they hit somebody else too and the other yeah. person in the car died. Yeah. And he's like, I did it and I feel terrible and I would have done it differently and I wouldn't have done it, you know, the same thing if I could do it again. But it's like something he owns that he did. And so that's it creates such an interesting dynamic because it's like this guy killed multiple people. And I think a lot of people would look at this character and say they're irredeemable. They should rot in prison forever or face a death penalty. And yet King makes us feel for him. We grow attached to Red we see what kind of man he is over time. And the idea of rehabilitation circles back at the end, right? Is we're like, how do we feel about red now? And, and like, we want him, I think by the end, we're cheering for red. We want him to have freedom again and to enjoy life. And that, that's something that a lot of people struggle to like, look at somebody and, and see the chance for redemption or for, um, you know, becoming reformed in any way. Um, especially in our country, I think that's a, a, a thing that a lot of people struggle with. It, it's difficult because there's there's cases of people maybe that that would get out and wouldn't be remorseful and wouldn't be all of that. But totally. That's why it's such a complicated issue. Right. And you see tons of times where people are, you know, obviously just awful and they're going to continue to be awful. And so it's it's a fine line to walk. But to see King write a story, but it's a one size fits all justice system just doesn't work for that reason. Yeah, right. It's yeah. clear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so for King to write a story of, of a murderer from the point of view of a murderer uh, that that's kind of recounting the tale of somebody who wasn't um, and to, for us to be close to a character like that and to see a redemption in that person. And, and honestly, to get the internal monologue of somebody saying like, you know, I regret it. And I would do it differently and kind of taking that as as like gospel and knowing that that's like that, that they really mean that that's who that character is. It's such an interesting exercise that, you know, people aren't willing to do for some people, you know, like you said, in prison that that never will get a second chance. Yeah. And, and often for much more minor crimes. And I mean, I think you could have a legitimate debate about whether or not even a character like Red is it, you know, I think there could be people who would say like, no, that person should never get the benefit of the doubt again because, you know, look at the, the deaths they caused. Um, they've robbed those people 
for a chance at having a life. So, I mean, I, it, it's even debatable with a character like him, but there's also lots of character, people in real life who've done much more minor things who get stuck in these systems, and the systems are designed to keep them in in many ways. Yeah. And are successful at doing that. Yeah, but it's interesting. I think, you know, I think this conversation that we're having about Red is not one that many have about Red after the story. I think a lot of people are like happy that Red oh, gets yeah. out and re reconnects with Andy. So like you said, interesting sort of thought experiment going on here. And one thing that is not touched a lot on uh, in this novella, but I think becomes more present in the in the film is race and the and the the role that plays in the justice system in this country and how black people are so disproportionately targeted yep. and, and imprisoned at higher rates and not given the benefit of the doubt and, and so many things and that's something that king only like dances around a little bit but like i think becomes more front and center in the movie my memory of it at least red being turned into a black man in the film makes made me think more about this book and how there weren't any black people that are main characters really and aren't, aren't really mentioned. Yeah, it's kind of whitewashed, yeah. And so, you know, that'll be interesting to watch for when we when we look at the film and see if we feel like that was a good change for, for those reasons. Absolutely. Um, all right. So I, I, I do want to give a, a, a little announcement here. We talked about it last week, but in case you didn't listen, we are accepting recommendations for TV show adaptations that we're going to cover as our next quarterly, upcoming quarterly project in the next like month or so. Um, so get those recommendations in now. I'll link to it in the show notes. There's a Patreon post. You can comment. A, it needs to be a book, uh, fiction, and it needs to be the first season of a television show. And we will end up covering that. Normally, we only do films, but we wanted to give TV a try. So if you've been waiting to suggest a TV show for us that you would love to hear us talk about, now's your chance. Get on there. Suggest it. Make sure to like any other suggestions that you agree with, like your own suggestion, because we count the number of likes they get to determine which top four will enter that final poll, which will be voted on by our patrons, um, which I should just go ahead and say, if you want to be able to vote on that final poll and get our bonus content that we release monthly, check out patreon.com slash ink to film and then uh, sign up for on there for as little as $2 and you can get all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what, you know, TV shows can be difficult for us, but we felt like it was important for our audience to have the opportunity to like pick yeah. one. So I'm excited to see. And we, we enjoy them. Yeah, we enjoy doing them. They're just longer. Yeah, television's awesome. Yeah. I, I you know yeah. I watch TV all the time. There's plenty, you know, golden age of television. There's no question. And I think honestly, so. they can sometimes make some of the best adaptations. Like just it, it really lends itself well. I think the TV the TV format can to it to a like especially a longer novel. It definitely can. Um, also, if you enjoyed this uh, episode, please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on. Um, give us a shout out. Mention this uh, this coverage and specifically um, let us know you enjoyed it. Um, we'd love to hear from you in that way. And connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. Subscribe on YouTube. We're on YouTube Shorts. So we're on the street corner yeah. shouting about it. We're everywhere. <laughs> Somewhere near Shawshank, near that this like poop pipe that Andy yeah. Dufresne crawled out of. We're right over there. Yeah. So you can find we're us. We're in the we're in the stand pipe and dairy offering you a balloon. Yeah, we're everywhere, man. <laughs> um, and thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right. All that's left is to go to this, uh, you know, multiple award winning film. Um, and I'm excited to get to it. It's been a long time since I've seen it. Um, but so I I'm curious to see how it how it holds up today. It's funny because like there's movies that I've watched many, many times that I feel like when we cover them for the podcast, I'm able to put like this capstone on them and say, like, I officially know where I feel about many different aspects that I wouldn't have necessarily dug. Because you're like into. you're like studying it. And I, I, I get that. And like thinking about it more deeply than usual. You're not just watching it passively. So I'm excited to put the capstone onto Shawshank, a, a movie that I feel like I'm very familiar with and like a lot and now we get to do the deep dive on it. Yeah, all right. Until next time. Keep adapting. Keep adapting.